Well, we have been studying the events of one single night in the Gospel of John for several months now. Prior to my trip to Canada last year, which seems now like a long time ago, um, we studied the foot washing narrative in May 2021. Then we began the Upper Room Discourse, which follows on the heels of the foot washing narrative, and finished with that over the next couple of months after my return from Canada in September. Then over the last several weeks, we've been studying the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. And I would remind you that even though we've taken several months to study through all this, it all happened in one night. It was all spoken in one night. John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 doesn't describe a long period of time. It describes one night. And the context of the passage before us today, John 18, verses 1 through 27, is that Jesus and his disciples have now left the upper room after Jesus washed their feet, after Jesus spoke to them in the upper room discourse, after Jesus prayed for them the high priestly prayer, they leave the upper room and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is called here in John chapter 18 and verse 1, the Garden Across the Brook Kidman. It's not called Gethsemane in John's Gospel, but we know by comparing the Gospel accounts that that's where they are now. There, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will be arrested by Judas and a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, as verses 2 and 3 of John chapter 18 tell us. The beginning of verse 4 leads us to our first point of study this morning. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Our first point of study this morning is that Jesus self-consciously substitutes himself for his people. We see here not a Jesus who is confused, nor naive, nor a Jesus who is impotent to defend himself. But we see here a Jesus who, as he said he would in John chapter 10, lays down his life of his own accord. And why? Why would Jesus lay down his life of his own accord? He told us in that same passage in John chapter 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus has talked the talk, and now it is time to walk the walk. And so in verse 8, Jesus said to those who came to arrest him, let these men go. I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go. Referring, of course, to His disciples. And though He says these words to the men who have come to arrest Him, who are merely instruments in the Father's plan of redemption, doing, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, all that God had predestined to take place, Nevertheless, we see Jesus here 
acting as a high priest, in some sense, pleading for the man for whom he is about to make atonement. When he says, let these men go, he's talking immediately to the people who came to arrest him. But theologically, he may as well be talking to his father and saying, let these men go. On the basis of what Jesus is about to do, he pleads for the release of his disciples. He says to the men who come to arrest him, look, take me. I'm going. I'm laying my life down. I'm cooperative with what you want to do to me. So let these men go. He might as well be saying the same to his father. Look, now is the time that I'm given over into the hands of these people. Father, then let these men go. If Jesus is to be arrested, there is no need for his disciples to be arrested also. If Jesus is to die, there is no need for his disciples then to die also. This is the literal sense of his words spoken in the context, speaking to the people who came to arrest him. This is what he means. If you seek me, then let these men go. But it is just as true that if Jesus is to bear the Father's wrath, then there is no need for his disciples also to bear the Father's wrath. Jesus knows all that will happen to him. He comes forward. And he is self-consciously offering up himself to his destiny. He knows that the cross lay before him. And he pleads for the release of his disciples in the temporal realm here to the men who come to arrest him. But theologically, this is what's happening here. They're like, if I'm going to go to the cross, then Father, let these men go. With respect to divine judgment also then. And of course, we see here again the Son acting according to the Father's will as He always does. For it was the Father's plan for Jesus to substitute himself for his people. Look at verse 11. After Peter takes this act of misguided zeal and cuts off a man's ear in an attempt to rescue Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword into his sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows that this arrest is the Father's will. Jesus knows that His going to the cross, everything that would happen to Him, is the cup that the Father has given Him to drink. And John alludes in verse 14 to something Caiaphas had said earlier in the Gospel account. You might remember back in John 11, verse 50, that we read of Caiaphas saying, it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John, the Gospel writer, the narrator, comments on this statement in verses 51 and 52 of John chapter 11, that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. 
and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. When I preached on that passage several months ago now, I explained that the concern of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jews, as stated in John 11:48, was that, quote, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. God forbid. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, what the Sanhedrin was concerned about was that Jesus would become too popular. And he would therefore become disruptive to the mutual understanding that the Sanhedrin and the Romans had with one another. And the status quo would be shaken up. Leading to more Roman intervention in Israel. And most likely, the loss of freedom that they enjoyed and the loss of the privileged status that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, enjoyed by kind of being in bed with the Romans. It is in response to this concern that Caiaphas speaks to the Sanhedrin and says, it's better just to get rid of one man than that the whole nation should suffer. That was Caiaphas's intention. Caiaphas didn't consciously speak of Jesus' atoning death. He wasn't making a theological statement that Jesus would die as a substitute, as the Lamb of God for the people to take away the sin of the world. He was basically just saying, look, let's get rid of this guy, and that way the status quo won't get shaken up, and the whole nation won't suffer as a result of this. But unbeknownst to Caiaphas, his words were loaded with more meaning. It was a double entendre, as we would say in literary terms. There was a dual sense to it. At a purely human level, the rulers would gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed in order to do away with his anointed, with a view to maintaining the status quo. Yet in the very action they take, God is rescuing the world from the death of his anointed and irreversibly undoing the status quo. They killed Jesus so that everything could stay the same. But through Jesus' death, the irony of it is that God is going to make everything new. See, God overrules and superintends even the words and actions of the wicked in order to fulfill his purposes. Caiaphas, like Joseph's brothers, meant evil, but God meant it for good. And Caiaphas then is unwittingly a prophet of the rescue of the sheep of God, the children of God. Caiaphas meant the death of Jesus for evil, but God means it for good. Likewise, these men who come to arrest Jesus here in John 18, mean it for evil, but God means it for good. They are pawns in a winning game that God is playing. He's moving these pieces around the board to bring things to check them. Jesus will, in fact, die for the people, as Caiaphas indicated that he would. 
which John reminds us of in John 18, 14. But Jesus will not die for the people in the sense that Caiaphas intended. Nor will Jesus die in the sense that Judas intends or in the sense that the Sanhedrin intends. But in the sense that the Father has intended all along. This is the cup that the Father has given Jesus to drink. This is the Father's plan. So Jesus consciously and willingly, knowing all that would happen to him. Remember verse 4. Knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus comes forward. Submits to his arrest. And goes with them. And this is not only his will. Remember, we have to see John stresses over and over again. The harmony between the Father and the Son. It is not as if the Father wants the people to perish and the Son interposes Himself to rescue people from an unwilling Father. No. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Which means we're talking about the Father. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus going with these men is not just his plan, but it's the Father's plan. The Father is working for redemption. The Son is working for redemption. It is God's plan that Jesus will die for the people so that God may justly let these men go. For whom Jesus pleads. There's more happening than just what we see on the horizontal and earthly plane in this context. It's not just men coming to arrest Jesus and Jesus saying to them, hey, you came to arrest me, let these men go. Theologically, what's happening is that Jesus is submitting to his death according to his plan, according to the Father's plan, so that these men might be let go. Now this is astonishing in itself that Jesus would substitute himself for anyone. Scarcely for even a good man would somebody be willing to die. Paul tells us in Romans. And isn't that true? You care, you care about someone as well. Would you die for them? I mean... What if you had to, say, for example, give someone your heart, which would save their life, but obviously kill you? Well, to be frank, that's a bridge too far for many of us, most of us. Scarcity for somebody dying, even for a good man. But Paul goes on to say, and Romans, but God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we weren't even good men. We weren't even the deserving. Look at this passage. It is especially astonishing that Jesus would substitute himself for men like Peter. John weaves Jesus 
going himself and pleading that his disciples would be spared, his intercession for them, therefore, together in John 18 with Peter's misguided zeal, chopping off a guy's ear, and then Peter's subsequent denials of Jesus. So we see four failures of Peter in this passage. The three denials plus this misguided zeal in verse 10 and 11, where Peter goes against God's plan and tries to rescue Jesus from doing what he must do. Well, Jesus, please, let these men go. Looking out for Peter's best interests. Peter is doing the same. No, I don't, I don't mean that Peter is being like Jesus, looking out for the best interests of his friends. What I mean is this. Peter is being like Jesus in looking out for the best interests of Peter. Jesus is looking out for the best interests of Peter, and so is Peter. He's denying Jesus so that he himself will be spared. See, Jesus says, let these men, including Peter, go. And Peter's also like, yeah, let me go. Right? Peter understands that Jesus is in serious trouble. And Peter wants nothing to do with it. It was a flash in the pan bit of emotional enthusiasm when Peter said, if everyone else denies you, I never will. Even if i got to die with you, I will never deny you. Just a flash in the pan. A little bit of excitement. got carried away. Because here in this passage, Peter denies Jesus three times. Once in verse 17. Once in verse 25 and once in verse 26. Remember that the events of the last several chapters have all transpired in one night. So it was only maybe an hour or two ago, at most, when Jesus said to Peter and the rest of the disciples in the upper room, greater love has no man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friend. And here is Jesus now, an hour or two later, practicing what he preaches. Showing great love. Laying down his life for his friends. But Peter shows how cold his love is and refuses to lay down his life for Jesus. Jesus is here set before us in this chapter as a real friend. He lays down his life for his friends. Jesus is, as I have repeatedly emphasized as we made our way through John's gospel, a friend of sinners. But all too often, sinners like Peter, show themselves unfriendly 
unfriend-like to Jesus in spite of his great love for us. We don't reciprocate the way that we ought to. Well, it may be tempting to throw Peter under the bus and say, he is like that. He's a bad guy. But even if everyone else denies Jesus, I never will. Well, it would be tempting to distance ourselves from Peter and present ourselves to others as better than this. And to maintain our own self-conception as good people. Very often, the reality is that we are like Peter. Now, we live post-Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit has come to indwell every believer. So we are in a more advantaged state than Peter is here in John chapter 18. After all, it is Pentecost. And not just some self-improvement on Peter's part, not just some effort, not just a little bit of reflection that puts steel in his spine such that he becomes a faithful and courageous apostle who many years later yielded up his life for his friend. And so we, in the power of the Holy Spirit, may not actually deny Jesus in the face of death, as Peter does here in John chapter 18. History is replete with Christians, even small children, who in the power of the Holy Spirit embrace death. Pentecost made a real difference, and we need to realize that we are reading about Peter pre-Pentecost. But nevertheless, we still so often prove ourselves unworthy of Jesus' love, Jesus' friendship, as Peter does in this passage. John deliberately tells us of Peter's unworthiness here in John chapter 18, while at the same time displaying Jesus' willingness to go to the cross in Peter's place so that we would know that Jesus is willing to save the unworthy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen to me. The gospel is not that you are so lovable. You are just so sweet. Just so precious. That God couldn't bear the thought of eternity without you. I mean, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. You know, God wanted you to be his valentine. Right? Like, this is the way that too many times we think about the gospel, that God is just smitten with us. We're just so lovable. God just didn't, couldn't conceive of eternity without us. How could God enjoy eternal bliss forevermore without you, without me? That is not the gospel. The gospel is that when you were no friend of Jesus, when you were unworthy of Jesus' friendship and Jesus' love, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. God shows His great love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For people 
like you and I who are so unworthy of his love, people like Peter who are so unworthy of his love, what kind of friend denies his friend when his friend is in deep trouble and says, I don't know that guy, just so he doesn't suffer the same fate? What kind of friend betrays you, turns his back on you, deserts you in a time like that. Peter is not a good friend to Jesus in John chapter 18. But listen here, Jesus is a good friend to Peter in John chapter 18. Christian, have you acted like a good friend to Jesus this week? Reading your Bible consistently, praying as you ought, Walking according to his commandments, turning away from evil at every point, loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, such that the heavenly host looks down and sees you and says, man, what a good friend to Jesus. No? So shame on him. A shame on me. How could we act in such an unfriendly way to Jesus, who is such a good friend to us. How could we be so unfriendlike? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that for us, and yet we find it a little bit too hard to set the alarm clock earlier. We trade Jesus for just this fleeting, trifling little pleasures of this world, shame on us. And yet, listen carefully, Jesus is a friend to you and me still. Jesus continues to plead before his Father every day for you and for me. Let these men go. Let these women go. Let these children go. Let these boys and girls go. These who are mine. Let them go. Look, I, I laid down my life willingly for them. As he said to these men who came to arrest him in the garden, if you seek me, let these men go. It's as if Jesus says to his father, look, you already dealt with him. In me at the cross. Let these men go. Even when we are not good friends of Jesus, Jesus is forever and unchangeably a good friend to us. Jesus has never once regretted giving himself for you. Do you understand that? In your heart? Jesus has never once regretted giving himself for you. And you know how I know that? Because Jesus didn't go to the cross hoping that the outcome would be a certain way. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. The portrait that the scripture paints for us of Jesus is not that Jesus hoped for a certain outcome that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will not lose one, but I will raise him up at the last day. 
and I willingly lay down my life for these people. You see, this there is foreknowledge involved in Jesus' crossword. He knew full well what was going to happen to him, and he knew full well who he was going for, who he was dying for. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Christian, for you, for me. Jesus didn't go naively. Jesus didn't go in ignorance. Knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus came forth. Which means that since Jesus did it knowingly and Jesus did it deliberately, Jesus doesn't now regret the way things turned out. Which means he has never for even a moment regretted giving himself for you. That's the friend that Jesus is to you. Jesus went anyway, brothers and sisters, to the cross for you. Being a good friend to you. Even though, many times, you have not been and continue to fail to be a good friend to him. In conclusion, I want to address directly any of you here this morning or watching online who may not yet be trusting in Christ Jesus for salvation from your sin. Do you realize that you deserve God's punishment for your sin? And also that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that the Son did not come grudgingly or willingly to lay down His life for His friends. And here's the kicker. Do you realize that whoever comes to him will never be cast out? Do you realize that you may go to Jesus this morning in prayer and ask him to be a friend to you? And he will never cast you out. You can ask Jesus to plead with his Father and to let you go on the basis of his crossword. Jesus will not turn you away. Jesus himself said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast him. You may think yourself unworthy, and you'd be right. But if you think Jesus unwilling on that basis, you'd be wrong. John contrasts here in John chapter 18, Jesus Willingness to go to the cross. Acting as a friend of the unworthy. With Peter's denial of him. Acting unworthy of Christ's friendship. In order to reassure his readers. That includes you and I. That the most unworthy sinner may come. He who has been no friend to Christ may have grounds to believe on the basis of John chapter 18 that Christ is nevertheless willing to be a friend to him. 
So I invite you on Christ's behalf to come to him this morning in prayer. Confess your sins. Ask him to save you. Ask him to be a friend to you. Your unworthiness for salvation is outweighed by Christ's willingness to save. Hallelujah. What a Savior.